0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Okay, kind of a heavy topic today, but a really important one. It's the brutal treatment of the Uyghur Muslims by the Chinese government. In a bit, we'll hear from an attorney whose new book details what life is like inside the prison camps where the Uyghurs are kept. But even outside of the prison camps, in their regular day-to-day lives, Uyghur Muslims in China exist under constant surveillance. Investigative reporter Jeffrey Kane put out a book last year titled The Perfect Police State that explains the advanced AI system watching over the Uyghurs that supposedly predicts whether someone will commit a crime. And he tells Here and Now Scott Tong that this technology, made with the help of American companies, is now being exported across the world.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveWrite publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or rei.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Ever see the film Minority Report? It's about a futuristic special
3: police force that works on what's called preventive policing, using psychics and technology to predict who will commit murder and stop it before it happens. Here's a scene from the movie.
2: In the six years we've been conducting our little experiment, there hasn't been a single murder. And now pre-crime can work for you. We want to make absolutely certain that every American can bank on the utter infallibility of this system.
3: Opponents worry this system could arrest innocent people. Well, China has developed a real-life version of preventive policing. Investigative reporter Jeffrey Kane's new book, The Perfect Police State, tells the story of China's vast surveillance machine used against ethnic minority Muslims in Western China. Jeffrey Kane, welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. Now, you start this book with the phrase that the targets of this surveillance call the situation. What is the situation if you went through your day in Western China?
4: Yes. So the situation is how uh, people from the weaker ethnic group describe their life without having to reveal too much in front of the authorities. So um, if you're living under the situation, um, what that means is that your entire life is surveilled uh, 24-7 by the state, nonstop by cameras, by artificial intelligence, um, by a predictive policing system that predicts whether or not you'll commit a crime in the future. Let's say if you're a woman and your husband has been taken away to a concentration camp, mm. you might actually wake up next to a man, a government minder, who was sent there to watch over your family and to ensure that you follow the party ideology. Um, oh this my person goodness. No, will, no, hold
3: on. This is a person not just at your door, but in your bed?
4: In your bed, yes. Um, the Chinese government has been sending out wow. government-appointed minders whose job is to actually go into your house, uh, live with you for days at a time, and they'll... Quiz you on party ideology. Are you following the correct line of thinking? Do you are you a patriot? Are you uh, a good nationalist?
3: Now you mentioned Kashgar, one of the big cities in the western Chinese region of Xinjiang, where a lot of the Uyghur Muslims are. They are the targets of this situation, this machine. How did they become the targets?
4: Um, so this actually goes back to the war on terror. There were a series of uh, terrorist attacks um, back in the early 2010s, about 10 years ago now, and also protests in 2009 that um, signified to the Chinese government that, you know, there is discontent in this region. There were people who were uh, traveling to Syria, traveling to Afghanistan to to study jihad and to potentially become terrorists. Um, But, you know, instead of picking out those enemies among a vast population in this region... Uh, the Chinese government decided to respond with a dragnet approach. They even used terms like, we have to uproot all the weeds. We can't just target one weed. We have to uproot this entire region. So it was a dragnet approach that uh, the Chinese government began, uh, just as there were new technological developments, advances in artificial intelligence, um, big data, deep neural networks. These are all new tech that would allow um, sophisticated equipment and machinery to essentially observe the population through cameras and through their smartphones and to gather uh, whatever data it could not on them. So their clicks, their purchases, their uh, movements, this would all go to a mass database called the IJOP, the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, which is a, a, a police platform that would you know, try to find correlations among data, and then it would nudge police officers when it, it believed that someone is prone to committing an act of terror in the future, and they they need to be visited by the police and interrogated, uh, maybe taken away to a concentration camp. So Mm. that is minority report right there. And that is what is so scary about this system. I've been to the region many times over the years. And on my most recent visit, which was December 2017, I could feel just the the terror emanating from um, regular people. It, It was as if You know, you look at them, and it's like their identities are blank, and they don't want to show any emotion, and they're keeping their heads down and and kind of walking around the city quickly so nobody stops them and nobody asks for their documents or their ID card. It truly is a place where everyone knows that they're being watched, and they're just not sure when or where by these AI cameras.
3: Wow. Now, one of these persons subject to this is kind of the main character of your book, a young woman who goes by the pseudonym Mysim, So she goes to school abroad and she apparently likes to read. How did this woman Mysim find herself in this machine that spies on the Uyghurs?
4: So she was a very young um, intellectual woman who, as you said, likes reading. She studied in Turkey. She did her master's degree there. And, you know, one of the things about the Uyghurs in China is that if they travel overseas or, say, if they take on, you know interests that are intellectual, or say they're reading banned literature, uh, such as the Quran, they become uh, deeply suspicious in the eyes of the government. And so um, son was in Turkey, um, finishing her master's degree, and she would return home every summer. She was actually from a very well-to-do, and even elite family in China, You know, even though they were from the Uyghur group. But the system, as she went home every summer to see her family, just began turning against her. The government minder knocked on her door one day, said that you have to install a camera in your living room. It's going to be connected to the local public security bureau, and that's the police station, essentially. Um, And then eventually, you know, after being monitored in her living room, she was called in uh, for interrogations where she would be, you know, grilled by three officers uh, sitting in this gloomy, dark, isolated room in in a local station Um, And then over time, she was finally called to formerly it's called a reeducation center, but it's a concentration camp. Mm. And at first she was going to do daily lessons, uh, six hours a day, and she would be allowed to go home. But she was reassigned again to an even higher level security concentration camp called a detention center. And she was forced to undergo just bizarre uh, nonsensical rituals that were designed to psychologically Uh, torture her, and even physically sometimes torture her, but mostly psychologically. And she realized quickly what this system was designed to do. It was a mass attempt to erase the heritage and the culture and the identity of an entire people, to just simply do like a a, a hard drive wipe. That was really what the system in Xinjiang was designed to do. And
3: now, Jeffrey, you talked a little bit about the technology that's being employed here. Can you talk a little bit more about how state-of-the-art some of this technology became over the years, whether it's recognizing voices or faces or high-tech cameras. Can you talk a little bit more about the level of technology employed here?
4: It's a mixture of AI and facial and voice recognition um, and also mass data gathering through uh, smartphones, through the WeChat app in particular. The thing about the technology is that it is new and novel, but I also found in my own reporting that even though the technology gives the impression that it's extremely sophisticated. It's actually not that sophisticated once you look under the hood because all it's doing is just a dragnet. It's not really a, you know, a sophisticated tinkered approach to, you know, targeting certain people or targeting certain places. It gathers mass data on what every single person is doing and then it finds correlations that don't really make sense to humans. I mean, it'll it'll determine like, "Oh, if you walk in through the front door, Uh, One day you change your habit, you usually walk in through the back door, Um, you know, the police should just visit you and and check you out, make sure that everything's okay and that you're not going to commit some crime in the future based on the door that you walk in. I mean, those are the sorts of things that would pop up. That's what's scary is that it's out of the control Hmm. of the humans who are using it.
3: Can I ask you about the, the companies involved here? I mean, there are Chinese companies developing this technology, American companies developing this technology you know, we in this country have had a debate over big companies and whether they're assisting the government in snooping on us. What have you learned about how tightly connected these companies are to the Communist Party?
4: There are two groups of companies that have been involved in creating this surveillance state in Xinjiang. And the first are Chinese firms that under Chinese law, they are essentially required to do what the Communist Party wants if there's some kind of investigation or national security matter. These are Chinese companies, but just to make clear, they are major global multinational firms that are exporting facial recognition, voice recognition. A lot of the similar technologies that have been deployed in Xinjiang are now being sold to governments and police departments in places like sub-Saharan Africa, Uganda, uh, you know, Kenya, also Central Asia, Uzbekistan. So these are you know regimes that can be um, authoritarian and that are deploying them to spy on the opposition and and whatnot. Uh, it truly is a scary development that China is exporting this technology. Mm. But we can't just blame Chinese companies because you know American firms too, Silicon Valley firms. Uh, they were deeply involved in creating a lot of the Chinese surveillance state. I, you know, American firms. Into deals to supply the semiconductor chips for Chinese AI being used against the Uyghur population in Xinjiang.
3: In the course of reporting this book, and you've reported across a lot of Asia and a lot of authoritarian places, how hard was it to do this reporting in the middle of this system that you write about?
4: It was very difficult. You know, whenever I went to Xinjiang, I would bump up against this surveillance state and they know how to find you and get you out quickly if they don't like what you're doing there. Um, so I was able to report mainly through refugees. I spent three years in Turkey, where most uh, Uyghur refugees have gone and resettled. It was the Uyghurs who, very heroically, came forward with stories, um, fully knowing that you know, like they could be at risk or their families could be at risk. They they really wanted to make sure that the world would know about this.
3: Well, Jeffrey Kane. Uh, author of the new book, The Perfect Police State. Jeffrey, thanks for your time.
2: Thanks, Scott. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life, Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash Why for more information. That's T E L A D O C health slash what's your why.
0: Nuri Tarkel was born inside a re education camp, and he told NPR's Ayesha Roscoe that growing up, he did start to see the Chinese government lighten up on their treatment of Uyghur Muslims. Then 9 11 happened and everything changed. He wrote about the Chinese prison camps in a new book called No Escape. And just a heads up, there will be mentions of sexual violence.
5: Until the early 20th century, Nuri Turkel points out in his new book, the people we know now as Uyghurs often referred to themselves simply as Yerlik, meaning locals, people who had just always been around. Their Central Asia home along the Old Silk Road in the area of what is now Mongolia, Northwest China and eastern Kazakhstan is full of mountains and deserts, cotton fields, and pastures. It is also host now to sprawling Chinese prison camps and brutal oppression aided by artificial intelligence. Nuri Turkel is an attorney serving on the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom and a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. His book is called No Escape, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program.
6: Thank you very much for having me.
5: Let's let's talk very specifically about what is going on in these camps and the stories that you laid out. I should be clear for our audience that their experience involves torture, sexual abuse. So I do want to give that warning. One woman was in a room so small with like 40 other women having to sleep, only able to go to the bathroom maybe two times a day, not seeing sunlight. Can you talk a bit about that?
6: The stories are uh, simply disturbing. It shocks the conscience. They are forcing Uyghur women that are the source of education for Uyghur kids when it comes to values, uh, religious beliefs, um, manners even, to go through this transformation process, which is a code word for um, human reengineering. So the, the food rep deprivation, uh, unsanitary conditions, mental torture, even potential death, were something pretty uh, common based on my interviews with the uh, camp survivors. What is not being uh, reported is the sexual violence, uh, the forced sterilization, even um, forcing middle-aged women to go through this brutal process. And the other thing that really, really strikes me is the fact that even some of them, after returning home, were subject to uh, this homestay program.
5: Well, yeah, let me ask you about that because the Chinese are actually sending People, Chinese people to stay in Uyghur homes who come and live in your house and spy on you. Like, talk more about that program, because that was really shocking.
6: Essentially, what the Chinese government has been doing is uh, sending uh, cadres uh, to Uyghur homes, uh, particularly those uh, families that don't have a, a male household leader. What they do is just come in and eat and sleep uninvited in their bedroom. So essentially, the Uyghurs are living in an open air prison. Even those who are not in a camp, even at your private home, you don't have a, a type of uh, a life that a normal people uh, would have otherwise. Mm.
5: Another part that you you talked about in your book is there were prisoners who are forced to renounce their faith, um, their Islamic faith, and to say that the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, is their only God.
6: To the Communist Party, Islam and Christianity are a foreign religion. That comes with a kind of a sense of community uh, that you stick together uh, that can be perceived as a threat to the regime. Or when you have a spiritual life. The Chinese uh, regime perceived that as a, a sign of disloyalty. Today, if you go to the place of worship in China, whether it be a uh, church or mosque or temple, you see uh, Xi Jinping's giant portrait. In Islam, looking at the picture to uh, perform any type of rituals are not permitted. And this is something that they also force the detainees to go through daily uh, in in those uh, camps. Uh, They have uh, forced indoctrination programs. Uh, We've seen images uh, during the holy month of Ramadan, Uyghur women and men uh, dragged to a public square participating in beer drinking competition or contest.
5: There, there was this point, um, and you grew up during some of that time, where there was some freedom for the Uyghurs, but that seemed to change after September 11th.
6: I don't know if it's a, it's a fortunate or misfortune. I, I have lived through all of it. The way that I was brought to this world uh, during the height of the Cultural Revolution, uh, where my young mother was detained and uh, gave birth to me while she was physically injured, and my father was um, uh, performing... Uh, forced labor. Uh, yeah. and, you, uh, and, and you were
5: born out. in a camp. You were born in a re-education camp, right? Exactly.
6: And during my um, high school, middle school years, I've seen uh, some loosening up in Chinese mm-hmm. government's approach to the Uyghur uh, people. And then um, after nine eleven, the Uyghur people had to deal with completely different type of uh, environment where the Chinese authorities... Claim that China is also a victim of global terrorism. But an international community bears some responsibility by listening to that rhetoric, even to this day.
5: I I did want to ask you about artificial intelligence because I think a lot of Americans would be blown away by they are getting biometrics. So they have Uyghurs, all of them coming in, uh, taking hair samples, even the way that they walk, cataloging it so that they would be able to track them if they see them walking, and the way that they talk, having them read um, passages for 45 minutes so that they will have voice recognition on them. Can you talk a bit about how artificial intelligence and, and these apps are being used as a part of this kind of open-air prison?
6: The Chinese government um, have, uh, developed, uh, has developed, uh, tested, and implemented some of the most intrusive form of surveillance. We have uh, already had uh, a serious issues, a rise of authoritarianism and dictatorship, uh, pushback against democratic values and freedom around the world, led by people like Xi Jinping and Putin. And this particular technological tools that um, Xi Jinping's China has, has already been uh, spreading around. Well, it's metastasizing. So what we should look at, uh, at this point, is a new type of uh, governance stemming from China. It may pose various types of threats to the world order.
5: That's Nuri Turkel. His new book is called No Escape. Thank you so very much. Thank
6: you very much, Aisha.
0: That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at, at org. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Gabe O'Connor, Kira Joachim, Tinbi Ermias, Daniel Hensel, Ravenna Koenig, Lena Mohammed, Justine Kennan, Milton Guevara, Nell Clark, Chad Campbell, Julia Kokorin, Jill Ryan, Jan Stewart, and Ed McNulty. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at ixl.com/npr.
2: This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.